Welcome to C3 Church Tugra. You're about to hear a message from our senior pastor, Julie Oldfield. Get ready to be inspired to live your best life. building, to a church, but we've come to the living God. We've come to the place where our Father is. We've come into the garden of His presence, God, and we thank You, Father, that You're here with us right now, Father. Would You just ask the Lord right now, open up my heart, oh God. Let me hear You. Let me see You. Let me feel You. Let me experience You. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we thank you, Lord. I wonder if I could just ask everybody to move in. Everybody just move in and down. In and down. Because I want to talk to you here this morning. Let's feel like a family this morning. Be brave. Fill all the gaps up. Move right along. Are you cold, are you? Glenda, move. It's not that cold. It is after India, I guess. Thank you, Jesus. That's better. Now I feel like I'm talking to somebody. That's all right, darling. Thank you, God. It's been such a journey over the last few months. Who would say that? This is an interactive service today, so you can talk back. It's been an interesting couple of months. Who's felt that? Interactive. It's been an interesting couple of months. Who's felt that? Who has personally felt like God has been challenging them in, in certain areas of their lives? Yeah. And, and can you pinpoint those particular areas and say, yeah, that's where God is challenging me and changing me? It's so incredible when we get a revelation, when, when we get a revelation and that it begins to bring a change inside our own heart. You know, the Word of God is living and active. And when the Word goes inside of us, there is actually a living, active change that takes place. The, the word, it says that the word cannot return void, but it will accomplish that which it has been sent to do. Therefore, every time we preach the word, even if you feel like, oh, I don't know if this is getting to me today, but you know what? It's getting to you because it's going in and it's layering in truth. And then there's a time when that truth, as it's laid in, it begins to bud and it begins to bear fruit. And it either begins to bear fruit that you go, I don't need that fruit in my life, or it begins to bear fruit, which is great. 
And what we've got to do is discern in our spirits what God is doing, what God is saying inside of us. We've been talking a lot about the prodigal son. Put up your hand if you, if you do not know the story of the prodigal son at all. Anybody? We all do. You wouldn't put up your hand anyway, would you? you go, oh, no, I feel like a dork, you know. Uh, interactive. Everybody knows the prodigal son story. So Pastor Phil has unpacked so much of that story over the last few months. And let's give him a hand right now because that has been, uh, I think that really is some of the best preaching you've ever done. And I feel like I'm being challenged. Pastor Phil, do you feel like you're being challenged? Absolutely. Are there times where you're sitting on our back porch <laughs> in tears because you don't know what God is doing inside of you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you cry over Downton Abbey and you don't know why? You do. You do. He does. He sits there bawling. I'm going, what is going on? It wasn't even sad. He goes, I don't know what's going on. I mean, this is a man that doesn't usually cry. You know, men, you know, you usually say to a man, you know, he starts to tear up. You know when a man starts to well up and it's like, and they go, like, suck it up, suck it up. They do that. He does that. And I just go, let it out. He says, stop telling me to let it out. I don't need to let it out. I've had my cry. And it's like one tear goes down. It's great. Okay. And, um, but Downton Abbey. It's like, go figure. That's right. I know. And so... God is doing something inside of us, and it kind of feels uncomfortable. Anybody feel uncomfortable right now? <laughs> I do. I feel uncomfortable talking to you. Do you know what it's like as a pastor to, you know, sit on a message and then say, I've got to stand up in front of these people now, and I've got to deliver something that I don't even know I'm doing very well myself. Do you know what that feels like, you know? So let's just do this together today that we're all in this together, and it's not, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm going, can you help me do this too? Because it's a big one. And I think it's so pivotal in, in the, the season of God right now. How many of you know that God has seasons and that God has he's an unfolding plan? From the beginning of Genesis to the book of Revelation, he is unfolding a plan of redemption, and he's unfolding a plan of bringing the whole story back to himself, to the book of Revelations, where he appears and he makes everything right and he brings his kids home and it's all good news. But until that time, the Bible says that we are being changed from glory to glory to glory with ever-increasing glory into the image of God. Right. How many of you know that change is hard? Who likes change? Who likes change? No. Bree loves change because... <laughs> She's the woman of change. She's the guru of change. If you've ever seen her on Facebook, you'll know she's challenging. Everybody should change. But do you like change yourself, Brie? It's hard, but I like it. Yeah, it's hard, but she likes it because you grow. And so we have this story of this, this prodigal son, and obviously there's a lot of stirrings going on inside this son. I mean, you don't just one day say, Dad, I want my inheritance and I'm out of here. There had to be a lot of stuff going on inside of him before that. How many of you know that? 
You don't just decide one day to say, Dad, I'm leaving. The comforts of home. I want my inheritance. I'm going. There's got to be some conflict between Dad and Son. There's got to be some conflict in his own life. There's got to be some, like, I don't really like living here. I think this guy's a bit old-fashioned. He's not letting me... You know, there's all this conflict going on, all this questioning going on inside of his head. And, there, and for a long time, this conflict would have been going on until it got to the point where, right, I want my inheritance and I'm out here. I want my inheritance early. Now, he knew by saying that he wanted his inheritance early that he was literally, by you know, Jewish custom, actually cutting himself off from his dad forever. In Jewish custom, if you took your inheritance and you left your father, the, they, would do, they would build a grave site, put your name on it, and declare that you're dead. You're dead, never to return. And they would say to the father, your son is dead. And the father would rip his clothes. My son is dead and he's never to return. You were never supposed to accept that son back again. And the whole town would be in on this, the whole community would be in on this. They would go, no, if that son ever comes back here, as Pastor Phil said, we will go, we will get a great big dish full of old rotten tomatoes and the old vegetables that we've thrown out, and we will take it and we will tip it over his head and we'll say, you're a disgrace, never come back to this town again. That was the, that's what they would do. And they would declare, you are dead, you are dead, you are dead, and they would rip their clothes to declare that he was dead. So this son knew by leaving his father and by leaving, taking his inheritance early, he was literally saying, I can never go back. And so we know the story of the son. He's out there. He's, you know, he's squandered all his money. He's got all, everything out of his system that he wanted to get out of his system. And he thought that he was going to find what he was looking for out there. How many of us know that we've had a long time looking for something that we never found because it was always where we didn't look? Mm. It was all the places that we looked, wasn't it, Frank? Right. You know, we were talking about to Frank the other day and, and remembering the years gone by. And we were friends with Frank before we even pioneered this church. And, and Frank had this long, ratty tail. It was like, and it was about that long. It was a big plait down the back. He had short hair, but this long, ratty tail. And so when he rode his motorbike, the ratty tail would... And he would look at himself in the mirror of the motorbike and go, there's my ratty tail, it's just going out like that. And so one day he comes to me, he says, I'm going to propose to Pauline. I finally met the woman of my dreams, I'm going to propose. And I said, let me give you a little trim on the sides before you go propose. Because I used to do hairdressing, so I'm trimming around the sides like that. And I went, oops, <laughs> there goes the ratty. And he goes, oh, sorry, I slipped. Pauline still thanks me to this day. <laughs> for cutting that ratty off. And she said yes, so that, that, that kind of helped. <laughs> we all got stuff that we've got in our past where we've been searching for something to fill up this gap inside of us, and he was doing that. Right. This son. But he never realised what he was looking for. Oh, darling, thank you. You're such a good boy. There's a son. The things you do when you've got a spirit of a son. Yeah. That's what it is. And so 
he's looking for something, but he doesn't realize what he's looking for isn't where he's looking for it. So he ends up, we all know where he ends up. Where does he end up with? Interactive. He ends up in the pig pen. And he's eating slop, and he's eating the slop out of the pig pen. And he says to himself, even the servants in my father's house get it better than this. Doesn't he? I want to read you this here, what I've written here. He had received his inheritance, but there was still something missing. He didn't find it in all the adventures he he had taken. He was still searching for something that nothing had fulfilled, even though he had received his inheritance. He realizes what is missing when he realizes what he is not. He realizes what is missing when he realizes what he is not. He realized that all the years that he lived in his father's house, he had never been a son. He had always lived in his father's house with an attitude that separated him from sonship. And when he realizes that, his language begins to change. He's eating this pig slop, and you can hear his language begin to change. And he says this in Luke 15, 18 to 19. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father. Suddenly there's a change in his language where it's not like the old man who was holding out on me, who was we, we had conflict with, but suddenly it's like I will go back to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called what? Your son. So his language begins to change. He realized that he had not been a son, and therefore he was out without the most important thing that we can have in life. You can take that scripture down, thanks. Therefore he was without identity. You know, the, the scholars tell us, the psychologists tell us, the research tells us that 85%, 85% of our identity comes from our father. Just sit on that for one second. And I know you're all thinking about your own father or the lack of or the shortfallings of or Some of you may be swearing in your head right now. And rightfully so. Because, you know, a lot of fathers have been a terrible example. But 85% of our identity comes from our father. They say that a girl needs to obtain her identity from her father by the age of 12. And if she doesn't, she'll go on a journey for the rest of her life looking for her identity. Maybe never find it. Always be a 12-year-old girl saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Someone like me, someone like me, someone like me. The magazines are full of them. The, the nightclubs are full of them. The streets are full of them. I mean, how hard is it, young men, to meet a girl that is just secure in who she is in her own identity, where she's not going, look at me, look at me, look at me, and hanging half a body out to try and attract you. You know, a guy, they say, a guy 
His identity is formed by his dad at the age of five. So, you know, dads that are too busy to be hanging around kids and say that's the mum's job, and by the age of the five, the son's identity has not been formed. It's an incredible thing in Jewish custom that when a, a boy reaches the age of 13, or it could be 12, is it? 12 or 13, Phil Cairns. I think it's 13. The father would put the son on top of his shoulders and he would parade him through the streets and all the people would come out from their houses cheering and clapping and he would take him to the city gates where all the elders, all the important dignitaries would sit at the gates and he would go to that gate with his son on his shoulders and he would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And right then, that son became a man. That son didn't become a man because he, you know, did some great feat or because he proved himself or because he, you know, killed some wild beast or whatever it was. That son became a man because his dad said so. And then for the rest of his life, that boy would have that in his own heart. I am who I am. Because my dad said so. And that little girl would have in her heart, I am who I am because my dad said so. My dad says I'm beautiful. My dad said I am worthy. My dad said. You know, a woman was put on the earth, you know, primarily as the crown of all creation, that the whole of creation and man would go, wow. That's why I called her woman. It's like, wow. And that's why every little girl wants just daddy to look at her dress spinning and say, look at me, daddy. Look at me, daddy. Look at me, daddy. Aren't I pretty? Aren't I beautiful? Aren't I wonderful? And every daddy needs to say, you are the most beautiful creature in all creation. You know, when our girls turned 13, we had a a ritual that we do with our girls when they turned 13, and Phil would take them on a date. And he would buy them a new dress, a pretty dress that they could swing out if they wanted to, because in those days at 13, you still wore pretty dresses, by the way. You didn't wear jeans with holes in the knees. And, um, and, And they would get their hair done. He would buy them a red rose. And he would buy them a ring. And he would take them for dinner of their choice, wherever they wanted to go. It was their choice. I know one of the girls said, Daddy, I just want to sit on the back porch with a candle light, and I want Mum to serve us her food, because I, I like Mum's food better than the restaurant. So <laughs> that was cute. And um, so they had this little table set up on the back porch down by the pool with a little candle. And there's Phil and his daughter. And I wasn't allowed to be there because, you know, I wasn't allowed to spy. And he would have dinner with our girls. He would give them their red rose, tell them how gorgeous they looked in their new dress. And then he would say this to them, this ring I'm giving to you, and, and you belong to daddy till the day you get married. But I want you to know that, this, that no man who treats you any less than this will ever walk across my front door. Because this is the way a woman is supposed to be treated. 
And our girls held that in our heart. You know, all of our girls, I said, you're not dating till you're 18. They didn't. And you're not getting married till you're 23. A couple of them blew that one. <laughs> only, only by a little bit, though. I was pretty close. I remember one day they were in the back of our car. And they were having a conversation. They were only little. I think um, um, Julie would have been about eight. Jessica would have been about seven. And Jamie would have been five. And they were having a conversation in the back of the car, and, and one of them says, I think it was Julie, she says, oh, I can't believe mum doesn't want us to date till we're 18, because I was pumping it in from when they were born, you know that, you do brainwashing. And, um, and then the other one says, I know, and she doesn't want us to get married till we're 23. I mean, really? And then one says... And guess what? She'll only let us marry a Christian. <laughs> and then another one says, well, what if I can't find a Christian? And Jamie, the five-year-old, goes, we're just going to have to get one and train him. <laughs> <laughs> I think she did do that with Garth, actually. I mean, he wasn't born again when he came into our church. and She definitely had her eye on him the whole time. And it's like... She got him and she trained him. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing when we have those foundations, but many of us don't. And uh, I know I didn't. So when Phil and I see, you know, our girls and our our son-in-laws who are even learning how to come into family themselves, and then we see our grandchildren, you know, we see little Moses born and we go like... We're praying over him in the hospital. We're, we're laying hands on him. We're speaking destiny into his life soon as he's into this world. You know what I mean? We were, there was prophecies over Moses the minute he was born, coming from Jamie from Africa. I'm prophesying over him. You know, and, you know, Grandpa, Poppy, he's laying hands on him. He's laying hands on Evan, telling him he's going to be the best dad in all the world. I mean, there's something about this. But that wasn't like that for Phil and I. We were first-generation Christians. First generation. So as Phil shared with you, you know, his dad with him was you know, in the war and therefore he was um, you know, disconnected from reality, from real life, didn't talk about real life, wasn't very affectionate. I mean, he provided, he was that kind of dad, he was there. But how many of you know we need to hear? We need to hear from our dad's mouth, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if we don't hear that from our own father, we'll go through the rest of our lives searching for it. But wait, there's a, there's a solution. Don't get all tied up and like, oh, well, he's dead now, the old bugger, and I'll never hear it. Like, cause, you know, you're supposed to laugh at that point. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'll have to have a recording. He's like, Nathan, press laugh now. And um, so, so we all have these, all of us really come from spaces where no father is perfect. The Bible actually says that our fathers do the best with what they have. They're never going to be like our Father God because we weren't created to get our whole identity from an earthly father because our, our earthly fathers can never give us that. We can only get our whole identity from the Father who created us. 
the one who made us, the one who knows us, the one who looks into our, into our very being and knows every molecule of how we're made and how we function and how we think. And then when you hear it from the Father, it's like everything falls into place. And you know, you can be 70 and for the first time, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I begged my dad. Well, I didn't beg him. I begged my mum to beg my dad, you know, because you've got to go around that way sometimes when you come from a silent generation kind of thing. But I said to my mum one day, you know, Dad, he never tells me he loves me. You know, he, you know, he goes to work, he does the thing, he's just disconnected. And I, I was one of six children, so... For me, it was like always like, can I just have one minute alone with my dad? You know, I longed for that. And I remember this day we were taking all these family photos and there was lots of family photos going on and big groups and, you know, I'm just one of the gang, I'm just one of the crowd, I don't really matter. And um, everybody moved away and I went up to him and I tugged him on his coat and I said, Dad. And he goes, you know, usually we go, What? You know, because everybody was so noisy and it was so chaotic. He'd always go, what? He was always half drunk. What? I said, Daddy, do you think you could do a photo just with me? I think I was about five. He said, what do you want that for? I said, because I do. And this moment, everything changed for me. Because he goes, Okay. And he, he, he sat down, he got someone else to take the camera, he said, sit on my knee. I sat on his knee, I looked up into his face, I thought, I just want to stay here forever. I'm on my dad's lap, none of the other kids are around, I've got him all to myself, I'm special, I'm important. We took the photo and he goes, there you go, off you go. You know, and so that was my moment. But I cherished that photo because it was the only moment I had with my dad. And I used to say to my mum, you know, why doesn't he ever say he loves me? You know, I, I just hope, and I used to pray, God, let him say he loves me before he dies. He's such a cranky old bugger, and, you know, just once, could he just say that he was proud of me or that he loved me? And on my 40th birthday, my dad came up to me and gave me an envelope. And he said, don't tell any of the other kids I've done this, or I'll have you he said, this is just for you, not for anyone else. And I can't believe I've done it, but I have. And if you ever tell anyone, I'll be really upset. Anyway, he's dead now, so sorry, Dad. I'm telling everybody. Um, and I, I opened this letter, and it was the most beautiful thing. And it said, to a jewel from her daddy. And it was a story that he'd written about my life about a jewel that had been given to him. Even though he had other children, it seemed like God was giving him a precious jewel right in the middle of his children. And, and that he loved this jewel. But there came a time when this jewel lost its luster. A prodigal son time for my dad, even though I didn't know I was doing that to him. And there came a time where the jewel lost its luster and the man cried out to God, can you help me restore the luster? And then one day the jewel came home and her luster had been restored because God had kept his promise. And then 
Then a, a setting came, and at first the setting for this jewel didn't seem like the setting that the, the, man, the, the father would have wanted for his daughter. But after a while, the father got used to the setting, which was Phil. And the father allowed the jewel to be placed in this new setting. And then along came four little gems, and the gemstones were set around the jewel. And the father couldn't be any more happy than he was. But then the Lord said, now I've given you the jewel. I've restored her luster. I've, I've put her in a setting. I've put four gems around her. But there's something I need for you to give me now. And the father said, what is that? I would give you anything, God. And, and, and God said to the father, I want you to give me the jewel the setting and the four gems because I want to give them to the people and I need you to release her for the people. And the father said, he was not just a happy father now, but now he was the proudest father in the world. I mean, and I'm just undone. My father's never even said boo to me and he writes this whole story and died not long after. It was, and it's just, I read it, I get it out and I read it to remind myself that I did get identity from my earthly dad. But many of us don't get that opportunity. We never get that opportunity. And, and I want to say this, if your earthly dad is still alive and you're out of sorts with him, and I know there are some irreconcilable differences, there are some things that fathers have done that we can never have a relationship with them again, and I totally get that. But if there is any chance of even the slightest reconciliation. And where does that start? That starts with forgiveness. That starts with saying, you know, God, I choose to forgive. I forgive my dad still to this day, and one day I'm going to feel it. I still forgive him. I forgive him that he didn't protect me, that he wasn't there. I forgive him that he drank himself to death. I forgive him that, you know, he wasn't that dad that I needed. I forgive him. I forgive him all the time. And one day... That's going to sink in there, and it's going, to, it's going to outwork in my life. But until that time, there is layers and levels of forgiveness and release that happen when there's deep-seated wounds. And forgiveness is the first step to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Hmm. See, many Christians, like the prodigal son, have received their inheritance, but it stops there. Many Christians have the benefits of the blood of Jesus. We're born again. We have the benefits, but we're still searching for our own identity because we haven't stepped from that place of just taking our inheritance into walking into the full blessing of that inheritance. This, this, the things the son was looking for in his journey were the very things the father had for him all along. You know, the party, the authority, the position, the provision, the honour, the unconditional love, the blessing, the destiny, the purpose, the identity... It was all there all the time. We need to learn as sons and daughters who come home, we need to learn 
to be sons and daughters who come home in our hearts to an extravagant father. I mean, in that story, you think about that father. He was so extravagant in giving away that inheritance early. I don't see the father saying, well, take your rotten inheritance and get the heck out of here and don't you ever come. No, he was extravagant. He says, you need your inheritance. You know, he would have had to sell off a portion of his land to give that inheritance. And he would have had to give the inheritance to the elder son at the same time because he couldn't have given it to one without the other. And so he had to sell his land. He was extravagant in giving that away. Then he was extravagant in his waiting. I mean, do you know how extravagant God is with you in his waiting? You think of, of, of you know, when you first became born again to now and who you were then and who you were a month ago and who you were two months ago. I mean, and God, he's not harassing you. He's not going, when are you going to get rid of that sin? When are you going to change? You know, then I'll accept you. God is just waiting. He's just waiting. Because in his heart, it's written in his book when you'll come running home. It's written. The father knew beyond a shadow of a doubt because of his extravagant love for his son that that son would come home. He knew he'd come home. He planned it. Don't you think that he'd laid in bed night after night after night? When my son comes home, I'm going to kill the fatted calf. I'm going to put a robe on his shoulders. I'm going to put shoes on his feet to declare that he is a son and not a slave. I'm going to give him my best ring so he can do business in the Father's name. And I'm going to throw the biggest party and I'm going to celebrate. And I'm going to run to him. I'm going to run to him before those city people get to him and before they throw that slop on his head. I'm going to run to him. I'm going to embrace him. And I'm going to let the whole city know, I don't care about your rules and regulations. I'm an extravagant father. And I've been extravagantly waiting for my son. I haven't been sitting here, you know, going over all the things he's done wrong and chewing them over in my mind and, and wondering when he's going to pay penance and, you know, is he going to say sorry? He better grovel when he comes back here. I tell you what he's done to me. No, he was extravagantly waiting, planning a party. Didn't even think about the things that the son had done wrong or where he had erred or where his shortfallings were. All he could think about was the day when my son comes home. And you know there's levels of coming home in God. There's seasons and levels of coming home in God. As he changes us from glory to glory, we realize the lies that we've been listening to and we're transformed by the renewing of our mind and the truth sets us free. And then we realize, why was I thinking like that? You know, why, why, why did I do that? You know, for me, it was always like, I've got to do everything I can to get the father's attention because I'm one of many children. Look at them all now. I had six to contend with before, and now I've got hundreds, hundreds of brothers and sisters. How in the heck will God see me, me, me in the middle of all this crowd? How me? It's me, God. So I'd sing louder, and I'd work harder, and I'd preach harder, and I'd have less sleep and I'd pray harder and I'd fast harder and I'd do everything harder because I just wanted God to see me, me. And all that time, I didn't realize that he saw me all the time. 
that I was always his favourite. Sorry. So are you. I remember there was this one day and it was the second time I'd been water baptised and I got water baptised the first time. It was a very religious dunking. You're done. And I went, no, I'm not done. And the pastor says, no, you have to get out of the tank now, Julie. You're done. I said, I'm not done. Because I read in the Bible, when you get water baptised, there's got to come a, a circumcision of the heart. There should come some type of impartation. And I should be speaking in tongues right now. I'm arguing with him while the other people are lining up in this baptismal font in this church to get in. I said, no, I'm not done. And my mum and dad had come to watch and they thought I was getting baptised into a cult and my dad was ready to have the, you know, he's going red in the face and I could see he's just about to punch the pastor out. And he's yelling, my dad was going, they've hypnotised her, they've hypnotised her, I've told you that. I told you it was a cult. And my mum's there and my deaf brother was there, who's, you know, my foster brother, he was there, he's deaf, he's going, oh, talking really loud, and it was all happening, and I'm in, the, I'm in the water, I'm arguing, I'm arguing, I'm arguing, and so I'm not leaving this tank until I feel something, dunk me again, and they went, get out of the tank, and they dragged me out of the tank, so I was very disappointed with my first baptism, I went home to my little caravan, and I cried my eyes out, and the Lord filled me with the Holy Spirit in my room, in my caravan, just because he did. And he says, well, you can have the whole deal because you want it. And I want the whole deal. So years later, we're at this camp and people were getting water baptised and I actually saw the anointing of getting water baptised for the first time where people were being baptised in power, you know. And all this time, I'd lived with so much rejection, so much rejection, where I just like, I'd go and talk to people. I don't know if anybody's like this. You know, I would talk to people and say, oh, it's a lovely day, isn't it? It's a lovely day. And I'd walk away going, you shouldn't have said that. Mm, you're crazy. You're mad. You know, now they're never going to like you. And I'd go home beating myself up. I wrote scriptures, put them on the bottom of my shoes, walked around on them, wrote them on the walls, wrote scriptures everywhere. I tried as hard as I could. And I would say to people, I just feel so much rejection. I feel so, you know, I just don't like myself very much. And people would say to me, oh, you know, stand on this scripture and rah, 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 confess the world. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. And you're a new creation in Christ. Yeah, well, I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm still battling inside my head with rejection. And so we're at this camp and they're water baptizing people. And the power of God was there. I mean, the pastor didn't even go in the water. He just stood on the shore and he was pointing, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he just pointed like that. And they had catches in the water. And people would get slain in the spirit in the water. They'd have to get them up so they didn't drown. And they're just like, and the power of God, and it was just amazing. And I heard the Father say to me, walk into the water, I want to baptize you into a new anointing. And I went, that can't be God. I've already been baptized. Is that right? I mean, yeah. So I didn't. And then I heard him again, walk into the water, I want to baptize you into a new anointing, a little bit firmer. And so I asked the person next to me, do you, think it's, do you think it's like scripturally right to get baptized a second time? You know, is it in, and the Bible said, one baptism, one faith, says this person to me. I said, right, yeah, that's right, one baptism, one faith. Then I hear him again, walk into the water, I want to baptize you into a new anointing. I said, blow all this, I'm off. I had jeans, jacket, everything gone. I just walk forward, I said to the pastor, I'm sorry, but I want to get baptized. 
sure, you know. I walked into the water fully dressed and just put my hands up like this. I felt the anointing all over me. I heard the pastor say something like, in the name of the Father, Son. I was bang into the water and then I went into a fetal position in the water, just like this. And I like, feel like I'm screaming, I'm screaming. And then the pastor walks into the water and he said, I command that to leave you in Jesus' name. And this black shadow just lifted off me. And he said, now you'll be able to love as you always have lo- as longed to love. And you'll be able to let others love you. That's what he said to me. And I come out and they put me on the sand, put a towel over my head. And I'm just like, you know, when you're in that zone, like, don't come near me, don't come near me, don't come near me, don't want to talk to me, I just want to be with God, that kind of thing. And while I'm there, I have a full vision. And in this vision, I see this beautiful mountain. And I see this beautiful girl. She has her back to me. And she's walking up the mountain. She's singing. And she's got the most... And I'm thinking, oh, she's so beautiful. She's got the most beautiful voice. Oh, if only I had a voice like that, everyone would love me. If only I looked like that, everyone would love me. And, you know, she's walking up this mountain. She's picking flowers. And all of a sudden, she turns around and looks at me. And it was me. You know what the first words that came out of my mouth? I've been ripped off. I've been ripped off. All these years I've hated myself. All these years I thought I was just pretending to be a singer, and yet I'm actually a good singer. All these years, I mean, I was getting paid to sing. I was professional, and I still didn't believe I could sing. All these years I thought I wasn't graceful, and I was gracefully walking up this mountain, and it was the most beautiful scene. And as I get to the top of the mountain, I see Jesus standing there like this. And the first thing I think to do is, of course, I've got to give him something for him to love me. I'll give him the flowers, and then he'll love me because I've done something for him. I've, I've given him something. And Jesus gently just smiles at me like this. Don't you get it yet? And he just moves the hand away with the flowers in it. He takes my empty hand. He looks at me in the eyes as if to say, it's only you I want. I just want you. And we walk off into the sunset like this gorgeous movie. It was like, (laughs) it was the most beautiful moment. But you know something from that moment? Because the revelation came from Jesus, because the truth came from Jesus, not me trying to make my own truth, not me trying to believe a scripture and stand on a scripture and stomp and stomp and stomp, but because the transformation came through a spiritual encounter with the living God, I was changed forever. And from that moment, I learned how to love myself. And I've been learning to love myself for the rest of my life. I can honestly say right now, I don't think I'm too bad. You know? And it took me till I'm nearly 60 to get there. So there's my father patiently waiting. He's an extravagant waiter. He just waits. He waits. He just waits. He's not in a hurry. Do you know why he's not in a hurry? Because he wants to do such a beautiful work inside of you that he knows anything beautiful takes time. It says in Ecclesiastes, he makes everything beautiful in its time. And there is a time on your life that God is working on you. The revelation that the son got as he came home to his extravagant father, the revelation that he got that he was not positioned as a son, 
caused him to turn to the Father. As we receive these revelations, as we preach this message, and we're going to continue to preach it for the next month, and even next week I want to go deeper, and I'm going to take you through a whole 20 points of how we can unlock certain areas of our lives where we still feel orphaned, where we still feel rejected, where we still feel we're having a, you know, just a wrong picture of our relationship with our Father and how we can break through. And we're going to spend time next week, the whole sermon time, praying through 20 points that will, I hope, give you release in a lot of areas in your life. I think it's just going to be so fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to it. I've been trying to do it for the last seven weeks. And the Lord keeps saying, I'm an extravagant waiter. Not a waiter like serve your food. Like, I'm extravagant at waiting, I should say. And so when he realized the revelation was this, I have not positioned myself as a son. I need to turn myself to the Father. And that's what I'm asking today, that in your heart of hearts, that you'll get a revelation, I have not positioned myself as a son. You know, maybe you're afraid. Maybe you had a father that was never, never said a kind word to you. And if I turn around to God, what's he going to say to me? Maybe you never had a father that was there at all. If I turn around to God, it will just be a nobody because there's never been anybody. And I didn't even know how to relate to a father. I'm so scared to even start this journey. But you know, your father is extravagantly waiting. He's extravagantly loving you. He's the extravagant father with his arms open, waiting. And he doesn't need every part of you to surrender right now and do a big work over, come on, let's get this thing done. No, he just wants the peace that he's got his hand on right now. That place in your heart that he's touching right now. And I believe next week and the weeks to come, he's going to put his hand on those really those areas of our lives, and he's going to show us, you know, this is where I want to go in you. Will you be the son that comes home to me and gives me a space in your heart? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I wonder if I could just have the keyboard now, Rach, to play that um, song, if you don't mind. You know, something you need to know is that the quality of your sonship does not depend on the quality of your earthly father. You know, you won't be any less a son to your heavenly father if you haven't had a great earthly father experience. Why do I say that? Jesus' lineage, lineage was David. And David was a murderer and an adulterer. In fact, Jesus was a perfect son with no earthly father. He will be a father for all eternity, but he had no sons. And he is the ultimate husband, but he had no wife. 
His identity was totally found in His heavenly Father. And so should ours be. And our goal is to be like Jesus. We need to take the risk, amen, to trust Him to bring revelation to our spirit man that we cease to function from an orphan spirit and awaken the spirit of sonship. You know, at 12, Jesus was already positioning himself as a son. When he disappeared and his parents went looking for him and said, where is he? We've lost our son. And they found him in the temple preaching and hanging out with all the scholars. And what did he say to them? Did you not know that you would find me where? In my father's house. At 12, it was already going. The most important thing to me right now is that I position myself as a son to my father. Not that I even honor Mary and Joseph. They've brought me to this world. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. But my main criteria is to, do, is to model the son and the father to a whole world of people that are about to get this revelation that I'm going to die so that I can restore them to their father. Amen. He he positioned himself at his baptism and the heavens opened and a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You know, if you position yourself over the coming weeks, even in your private time at home, just position yourself. You know, be, be obedient to the voice of God. John says, you shouldn't be getting baptized. You shouldn't be getting baptized. You know, that's not right for you to get baptized. No, I have to be obedient as a son and position myself as a son to my father. I will do everything that the law requires. Baptize me, John. And the heavens open and a voice comes. This is my son. You know, the heavens can open over you even this morning. And you can hear that voice say, this is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. You know something? The world's getting crazier. Who would agree? And so far in Australia, we've had it pretty good. But you know, there's going to come days when you're going to be challenged on your identity. And as soon as the heavens opened over Jesus, and the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he was driven into the desert where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by the enemy, by the devil. And what was the very thing that the devil went after? His identity. If, if you are the son of God, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, you know what? There's going to come a day where your identity is going to be more challenged than it is right now in the world we live in. And that's why God's finger is on this message. That's why God's hand. This isn't just a nice message. Not many churches would have the guts to preach this message, to be honest to you. If they want to fill their churches up with nice people, they're not going to preach messages that challenge, messages that change, messages that churn hearts. Because they don't want people to run away and get offended and get scared. 
They want to keep their flock nice. But I tell you this, Pastor Phil and I are committed to making you all that you can be, to live in the days that you live in, to be the best that you can be, to be the greatest Christians, to be the greatest sons and daughters that the Father looks down and the heavens open up over you and healing and blessing and ministry flow from your life because you're positioned in the right way. You're positioned in a way that right from heaven, it can flow right through you. No blockages. You know, Jesus said, I know Satan. And there is nothing of him in me. What a beautiful thing to stand in front of our Father and say, like David, Lord, creating me a clean heart, creating me a pure heart. Lord, take away every blockage, remove everything. That's why David was said, he's a man after God's own heart. He is a true son of a father. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you, God. Jesus. Mountain, you won't climb up, coming after me. say it, help us to know you more. Father, look at my heart. Show me the areas where I'm blocking your love. And lead me into everlasting life. I want you to love me the way that you want to. Come on, everyone say it. I want you to love me the way that you want to love me. And I know you've been extravagantly waiting. And you long to pour your extravagant love on me. Help me to come home in every area of my life. In Jesus' name. Help me to forgive my earthly parents. Help me to walk out of this bubble that the earthly realm has put me in. And help me be connected to my Father in heaven. In Jesus' name. listening to this message. For more information on what you've just heard or how to visit us, go to c3telgra.org.au. We hope to see you at church soon.